let's pray together. Father, now as we have heard your word being publicly read, we ask that you would speak to us, humble us, teach us, shape and mold us by the authority of your word. Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful, that it changes us, it brings us life, it reminds us of who we are, confirming our hope that we have as children of God, assuring us of the destiny that we have inherited through your son, Jesus. Father, I pray now that as we have just prayed, bearing our burdens and laying them at your feet, that we would now be fully attentive, banish whatever distracting thoughts that our flesh or the enemy can throw at us, so instead we can humbly sit at your feet, be nourished and strengthened and encouraged by your word, equipped by the Spirit of God through the preaching of the word to go back out into the world as your faithful ambassadors. Lord, we thank you that you continue to guide us and lead us by the teaching of your word and that by this guiding light we have hope we have purpose we have peace god would you now speak to us again and that you would bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it for we ask in jesus name amen amen Well, good afternoon, guys. Welcome once again to New Creation Fellowship. We also want to welcome those of you again, as Pastor James says, those of us who may be visiting us. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, coworker, classmate, or whoever, thank you so much for honoring us with your presence. We hope and pray that our time together will be edifying and encouraging to you. If this happens to be your first Sunday, let me just give you an orientation about what we're doing right now in our sermon series. We're currently in a sermon series through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes, and I've entitled this sermon series in Ecclesiastes as reality used to be a friend of mine. And if you ever read through the book of Ecclesiastes, you can easily understand why I gave this series that title because really the whole point of what this book is about is trying to figure out how do you handle living in a reality that is no friend of yours. In other words, how do you handle living in a world that makes you just sigh all the time, makes you go, all the time because it just sucks so much. Well, that is what this book is trying to teach us. And as we go through this book, we're going to take a look at what the author of Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, tells us as he surveys all the various reasons as to why you and I are chronically sighing to where we almost just want to say through that breath, meaningless, meaningless, all of life is just meaningless. And today, in our text, Solomon wants to draw our attention to a particular issue that makes us sigh all the time, and that is the issue of control. The issue of control. I want to talk to you guys today about this thing known as control. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you this afternoon. First, I want to talk about the control we try to have, okay? Then I want to talk about the control we never had, And finally, I want to end it with the control we can receive, the control we try to have, the control we never had, and finally, the control we we can receive. Okay, let's jump right in. First, the control we try to have. Let's read again verse 13 and the first half of verse 14 where Solomon writes this. Then I saw that there is more gain in wisdom than in folly as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has... eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. Now here in these verses, Solomon teaches us about the importance of wisdom, the usefulness of wisdom. But here's the thing. You can't really understand what he means by that until you first understand what he assumes about the world or how he describes the world. And so here we begin our first point asking this question. How does Solomon describe the world in these two verses that I just read to you? How is he describing the nature of the world? What does he say it's like? He says it's dark, right? 
He says there's darkness everywhere. And so you might be thinking, well, what do you mean by that, Solomon? What do you mean that the world is so dark where there's darkness in it? Well, really, it's not that hard to figure out, especially when you consider how in our culture today, how we perceive the word darkness. In our culture today, we consider the idea of darkness in a very specific way. Here's a question for you. Do you guys know where you see in our cultural context today where you see the word dark or darkness the most? Do you guys know in what kind of setting, what kind of context where you see the word dark or darkness in it? Horror movies. Scary movies, yeah. I cannot tell you how many hundreds of movies that are out there, maybe even thousands of movies that have in its title either dark or darkness. Movies like, what uh, I don't know, Prince of Darkness, Darkness Falls, Dark Water, The Darkest Hour, Army of Darkness. In fact, earlier this year in 2016, there was a horror movie that came out starring Kevin Bacon simply entitled The Darkness. Anyone see that movie, The Darkness? No, I didn't see it either. It just looked really cheesy. Here's the thing you have to know about me. I hate horror movies. I mean, I really, really hate horror movies. And no, it's not because I'm a little coward and I get all scared. I'm worried about having nightmares. No, I actually don't get scared watching horror movies. I still want to waste my time with it because I think horror movies are so stupid. There's no art to them. There's really no real, you know, narrative development in it, you know. I think it's just a pointless waste of time. And yet, horror movies today borrow an idea of darkness that I think is actually spot on, an idea of darkness that's actually true. And what is this idea? It's this idea of certain situations and certain circumstances that terrify us, right? Certain situations or circumstances that terrify us. And why do these situations and circumstances terrify us so much? Because they are circumstances and situations that we have no control over whatsoever. You know, when you see a demon coming after you, you can't really figure out what to do. You know, your, you know, your BJJ is not going to work on a demon chasing after you, right? I mean, that's what horror movies are trying to say, is that, that there are circumstances beyond your control. But here's what's interesting. If you consider how the Bible understands the idea of darkness, you see that same idea being conveyed. Take a, take a couple listens to some passages in the Bible about darkness. Listen to what Job chapter 3 says. It says this, Let the day of my birth be erased, and the night I was conceived. Let that day be turned to what? Darkness. Let it be lost even to God on high, and let no light shine on it. Let the darkness and utter gloom claim that day for its own. Let a black cloud overshadow it, and let the darkness terrify it. Genesis 15 reads this. As the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came down over him. Deuteronomy 28, the Lord will strike you with madness, blindness, and panic. You will grope around in broad daylight like a blind person groping in the darkness, but you will not find your way. You will be oppressed and robbed continually, and no one will come to save you. Darkness in the Bible conveys circumstances and situations that are beyond your control, situations that you have no power to take over, to control, to manipulate under your command, right? And according to Solomon, that is what the world is like. This world is filled with darkness. Not because it's filled with, you know, goblins and witches and demons. No, it's because this world is filled with circumstances and situations that you are utterly powerless to control. Situations, circumstances that go beyond your ability to manage. Now, 
You would think that Solomon, being aware of how dark the world is, of how uncontrollable the world is, you would think a guy with that level of perception would be filled with terror, that he would be so scared, that he would be so overwhelmed knowing how the real world is, of how scary the real world can be. And yet when you read the verses that I just read to you, 13 and 14, you don't pick up any hint of fear, any hint of anxiety, any hint of worry as he speaks these words. The question is why? Read it again one more time. Then I saw there is more gain in wisdom than in folly, as there is more gain in light than in darkness. The wise person has his eyes in his head, but the fool walks in darkness. You see, Solomon, he's not terrified about how uncontrollable the world is, about how dark the world is. Because even though there are circumstances, there are situations that are beyond control, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to stay that way because Solomon is aware of something that exists, something that is out there that he could acquire for himself, that if he had it, the world wouldn't be as scary. The world would be manageable. The world could be under his control. Here's the question. What is this thing that he's referring to? The answer, wisdom. Wisdom. For those of you who ever studied philosophy, you might have noticed how different Eastern philosophy is to Western philosophy. If you ever studied Plato, for example, and you compared him to Confucius, very, very different. If you ever studied, I don't know, uh, Socrates, and then you studied Buddhism, Siddhartha Gautama's teachings, you're like, whoa, very different. And yet, what all these different ancient philosophers have in common is their common love and their common devotion for wisdom. Why? Because they knew what Solomon knows in our passage, which is what? The more wisdom you have, the more you can explain things. The more you can explain things, the more you can be in control of those very things. Listen to how one Bible scholar, D.A. Carson, puts it. He says this, quote, In the first century, wisdom was a well-articulated worldview that made sense of life and ordered the choices, values, and priorities of those who adopted it. An organizing system, a coherent worldview, conveys a sense of power. If you can explain life, you remain in control of it. The Greeks were renowned for their pursuit of a coherent system of thought that ordered their world. In short, they pursued wisdom. Wisdom. Now, some of you in here are hearing all this talk of wisdom and your eyes are just glaring over. Right? You're just like, uh, Pastor, uh, I'm not into philosophy. I'm not one of those deep thinkers. I'm a simple, practical person. You know, I'm not all introspective. I don't sit in the corner of my house journaling deep thoughts, you know. And so what you're saying here or what Solomon is saying here about wisdom and all that stuff, it just doesn't seem relevant to me. Right? I don't think this is something that is important to my life. I don't think this is something that I can really relate to. My response, wrong. Wrong, because even if I don't know some of you in here, I know that all of you in here, just like every other human being in this world, is seeking wisdom. Why? Because we live in this same dark world that is so chaotic. And if you are a human being living in this dark world, the natural instinct of every human being is to what? To get control. Every single one of us in here, whenever we find ourselves in an uncontrollable situation, is to seek control. Right? If you're drowning, the instinct is, doesn't matter if you're type A, type B, is to what? Breathe. If you're in a situation where it feels like life is drowning you, you're out of control, the immediate instinctive reaction is to seek control. Let me give you a couple examples, practical examples, to, see, to show you that this is true. Let's say when you were a young kid, maybe if you were a boy, for example, you were bullied a lot. You were beat up a lot. You were picked on. And as a result of this constant bullying, you acquired this chronic fear of people. 
right? And as a result, you don't go out, you don't engage people, you don't really go into the city, you don't really spend after hours with coworkers or classmates, you don't like being around in new places or new people because you're always terrified because you always have this fear of people. And at one point, you're just like, you know what, enough. I'm tired of being a prisoner of my own fear. And so as a guy, you decide to take Brazilian jiu-jitsu courses. (laughs) Or you decide to know how to shoot a gun if you're crazy, right? And you want to learn some knowledge, street knowledge, right? Street wisdom, right? So that you can acquire a certain kind of wisdom that all of a sudden evaporates the fear of other people. Now you're more confident. You more feel in control of circumstances with people around you who you feel like could be dangerous towards you, right? That's wisdom. Or let's say you're a single person and all of your friends around you are getting married left and right. Like they're getting married everywhere. You're being left behind. And all of a sudden you're spiraling control. You just envision 50 years, you know, of singlehood, you know, living with your mom, you know, going to stop and shop together, coupon sales kind of thing. And you're freaking out, right? And so what do you do? You're like, oh, man, I'm so scared. I'm going to be perpetually alone for the rest of my life. And so you know what? You say, no, I'm going to go to Barnes & Noble. I'm going to go on Amazon.com, and I'm going to purchase that New York Times bestseller, How to Get a Husband in 10 Days. You know, the book that was stellar and got all these great reviews and got all these marriages by people who read it. And so you pick it up, and all of a sudden your fear evaporates. You feel like, you know what, 10 days, he's going to put a ring right here, right? Why? Because now you have wisdom relational wisdom, and now you feel more confident, less fearful, less scared of what your future could be. Or let's say you grew up in a family where it's just financially unstable. Your parents had a hard time making money. Your parents had a hard time keeping money. And you're just so afraid that you're going to live in poverty or you're going to be struggling economically like they did. And so you go to college and you study finance. You study business. You study economics. And the more you study these things and you learn how money works, you all of a sudden don't feel so afraid. Because why? You've acquired financial wisdom. You see, wisdom is simply the skill of knowing how to control various situations and circumstances that initially we have no control over. Let me say that again. Wisdom is simply the skill of knowing how to control various circumstances and situations that initially we have no control over. Whether you're talking about wisdom in a classroom, wisdom in a dojo, wisdom on a gun range, wisdom in a New York Times bestselling book, wisdom is something that every single one of us are chasing after. It doesn't matter if you're a philosopher or not because every single one of us is seeking to find control for our lives. We want to be in control of our lives. But here's what's a little bit of a brain teaser here. According to the Bible, that wimp who's trying to learn BJJ or learn how to use a gun, the Bible would say that that wimp, he doesn't ultimately want to know how to fight or how to simply defend himself. That's not his ultimate goal. No, his ultimate goal is to give him a sense of peace that he has control over his life. And his ability to fight or his ability to defend himself, that's just evidence he points to to assure him that, yes, indeed, I have control. When that single woman desperately wants to get married, the Bible will say, no, she doesn't ultimately want a husband. No, she ultimately wants control, a sense of control, and she's looking to her husband as evidence, as proof that, indeed, she has control of her life. Or when that student studies finance or economics at school, That student's ultimate goal is not to be financially stable. No, that student ultimately wants a sense of control that he points to his education, 
that he points to his bank account as proof, evidence that, yes, I finally have control in this chaotic, uncontrolling world. And that's the promise wisdom is making to all of us. Wisdom promises us that if you go after it, you'll be able to have control in a seemingly uncontrollable world. It sounds beautiful. It sounds wonderful. It sounds amazing, right? But Solomon says, hold on. Solomon says, be careful. Don't get so caught up. Don't get so obsessive. Don't get so hopeful in wisdom. Because if you do, you will be utterly betrayed. What does he mean by that? Well, let me explain by going to my next point, the control we never had. Read again with me, verse 15, all the way down to verse 16. Then I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me also. Why then have I been so very wise? And I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For of the wise as of the fool, there is no enduring remembrance. Seeing that in the days to come, all will have been long forgotten. How the wise dies just like the fool. Here Solomon tells us why it's so stupid, why it's so foolish to get so devoted and so hopeful towards wisdom. He says specifically at the end of verse 16, the problem. What is it? The wise dies just like the fool. The wise dies just like the fool. What's Solomon talking about here? He's talking about death, right? Well, why is Solomon talking about death? And what does that have to do with anything that he's talked about so far with this discussion of wisdom? Well, let me explain. We live in a time where we try to minimize death so much. We live in a culture that tries to overlook and minimize the reality and painfulness of death. We see it all the time, even in our culture forms, like in movies and stories. Case in point, one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Gladiator. Crickets. What? Well, I never heard of it. Gladiator. It's one of the best movies of all time. For those of you who haven't seen it, which is probably all of you, it's basically about this Roman general turned gladiator, General Maximus, right? And he was a rough and tough Roman general who conquered like a third of the known Roman Empire world. And in one powerful scene in the movie, he says these haunting words to his enemy. He says this, quote, death smiles at us all. All a man can do is smile back. Now, when you hear those words coming out of Russell Crowe's British-accented, rough-and-tough-sounding mouth, you know, all the girls like, ooh, all the guys like, yeah, right? You hear him talking and just laughing off the, the, the gravity of death, the, the scariness of death, right, just acting like it's no big deal. The natural instinct for most people is to be like, wow, such courage, such valentry, wow, look at that. In fact... This is something that has been around in many cultures everywhere. Social anthropologists and sociologists tell us that many cultures, even ancient cultures and cultures today, constantly try to overlook the impact of death, try to minimize it, try to, try to make it look like it's a harmless thing. You know, in his Pulitzer Prize winning book, The Denial of Death, sociologist Ernest Becker writes this, quote, we admire, mo- we admire most the courage to face death. We give such valor our highest and most constant adoration. It moves us deeply in our hearts. When we see a man bravely facing his own extinction, we rehearse the greatest victory we can imagine. In other words, when we see someone like basically confronting death and laughing it in its face, we think, wow, bravo, such courage, right? Such power, such control. But compare that 
to Solomon's reaction as he thought about his own impending death in the beginning of verse 17. What does he say as he thought about his impending death at the beginning of verse 17? What does he say? I hate life, right? That's what he's, can we have the passage up there? Verse 17. Oh, so I hated life. It is right there. There it is right there. So I hated life. I think it's safe to say that Solomon didn't share the same perspective that General Maximus had in the movie Gladiator. Really, Solomon? You hated life? Why do you hate life? Shouldn't it be the other way around, Solomon? Shouldn't the fact that one day you are going to die make you appreciate the life that you have now? Why do you have to let this spoil your perspective of life? Why do you have to let the reality of death cause such negativity in your way? Why can't you just live and be grateful, Solomon? Why do you hate life so much simply because of death? Well, listen again to what he says in verse 15 because he tells us, What happens to the fool will also happen to me. Why then have I been so wise? In case you didn't pick it up in the way I read it, Solomon is angry. He's angry. Why is he so angry? He's angry because the wisdom that he thought would give him control over life turned out not to be true. The control he thought he had in acquiring all this wisdom turned out to be a false control. No control. No real control. And the reason why he knew wisdom didn't give him the control he thought he had was because of the fact that he shared the same fate as the fool. Death. Death. You see, Solomon observed life long enough to recognize that death is the inevitable outcome of a person who has no control over life. That's the fool, by the way. That's the definition of a fool. If a wise person is someone who has control over their life, the fool is the exact opposite. The fool is someone who has no control over life whatsoever, evidenced by the fact that he is dead. Right? Listen to some of these Proverbs. As Solomon describes this dynamic, he says this in Proverbs 1. For the waywardness of the simple or the fool will kill them and the complacency of fools will destroy them. Proverbs 10. The teaching of the righteous feeds many, but fools die for lack of wisdom. You see, Solomon was aware that someone died. Their death was evidence that they had no wisdom. That is, they had no control over life. And this is why when Solomon was aware that his death was going to be the same death as the fool. That's why he got angry. That's why he hated life. Because the sense of control he thought he acquired by acquiring more wisdom turned out not to be true. In a sense, Solomon realized that the goal he was trying to achieve by getting more and more wise was unattainable. He could not have true control, evidenced by the fact that he was going to die just like the fool. And any sense of control that he thought he had through his wisdom was simply superficial and very trivial control. You know, one interesting story that I think powerfully illustrates this is the story of King Philip. King Philip was the father of Alexander the Great, who was considered one of the greatest ancient conquerors of the world. And historians tell us that Alexander the Great would not have been as great as he was without his father, King Philip. And yet there's an interesting story that you read about in Alexander's stories that shows this principle that Solomon is talking about. One day, Alexander is out in the camp somewhere, and he noticed that his trusted advisor, a man by the name of Diogenes, is intently staring at a pile of bones, right? I mean, he's really staring at it in a very serious look. And so Alexander the Great goes up to him like, dude, what are you doing? What are you staring at these bones for? What's the big deal? Is your mom in there or something? 
This is what Diogenes says to him. He says, I am searching for the bones of your father, Philip, but I cannot seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Death is the irrefutable proof that you have no control of your life. And because Solomon was aware of his own inevitable death, he realized he didn't have control of life as he thought. And as a result, he felt so betrayed by wisdom. And he hated the life that his wise living created because it was basically a life, as far as he was concerned, was a lie. It was a lie. Now, maybe some of you in here are hearing this and you think, man, Solomon, he's some dramatic dude, melodramatic dude. I mean, come on. Solomon, you're the king. You have all these wonderful benefits. You know, you get to eat all these luxurious foods. You get to be with all these beautiful women. You get to have all this wealth. And you're complaining? Solomon, why can't you just enjoy life? Why do you have to be such a Debbie Downer? Why do you have to let the reality of death, which is, by the way, a reality for everyone, why do you have to let that spoil this lavish, luxurious life that you have right now? Why can't you just accept? This life that you have and be grateful for. Why do you got to be so selfish by mooding and marauding over the fact that you're going to die? But, you know, if you think that way, if that's your perspective, that tells me you have no clue about how horrific death is. Hear me when I say this. Hear me very clearly. There is nothing more humiliating, nothing more degrading than a person dying. Let me say that again. There is nothing more humiliating. There is nothing more degrading for a human being than for that human being to die. Now, some of you are probably going to want to push back. You're like, uh, pastor, I don't agree. I don't agree. I think there are things that people go through in this life that is actually worse than death itself. For example, I can think of parents in third world countries where they're trying to feed their starving babies. And yet they can't feed them because they have this virus where they constantly vomit every food they get, they get fed. And now this child is slowly starving to death. I think that's worse than death. Or... You know, I, I can think of terminal cancer patients, Pastor, losing control of their bowels, losing all of their hair, age 23, looking like they're 93. I think that's worse than death. I think the kind of suffering that person has to go through is worse than death. Or maybe an elderly Alzheimer patient who think their own children are strangers trying to hurt them, constantly getting worse and worse, picking up pneumonia, picking up more cancer or something more sinister. I think these are situations that are worse than death itself. So what do you have to say for yourself, Pastor? Here's my response. Has it ever dawned on you that the reason why those things are so terrible is because those people suffering those things are so close to death? Has it ever occurred to you that one of the ways we can see how degrading and how humiliating death is, is seeing how it affects those who are very close to it? You know, it's true. We cannot say with absolute certainty that death is the most humiliating, degrading thing that a person can go through because none of us has died, right? But you know what we can say with absolute certainty? We can say, because we've seen it in people we love or people we know, that the closer a person gets to death, the more sick they become, the more degraded they become, the more humiliated they become. You know, there are some people who see someone suffering really, really bad. I mean, really bad. And they can't take it and they just want to say, you know, can we just let this person go? Can we give this person the dignity of just letting them die? Why do we have to hold on to him? Look at the way how he's suffering or she's suffering. It's so pitiful. Look at the condition that they're in. It's so sad to watch. I can't see it. And so some people will say, why don't we just let this person have some dignity? Let him go. Let him die. Right? People say that because they assume death 
will be better than this state of humiliation and degradation that they're in as they're suffering so much. But you know what? That logic doesn't make sense to me. You know what that's like? That's like saying, hey, the closer you get to fire, the more suffering you endure. So why don't you just jump right into the fire? The closer you get to fire, the more miserable you are, the more in pain you are, the more you start disintegrating and degradating as a human being. So just go right into the fire. Would you say that? Of course not. What if death is not the end of humiliating suffering? What if humiliating suffering is simply the beginning of the worst possible humiliation, death itself? Let me say that again. What if death is not the end of humiliating suffering, as we so often assume? What if humiliating suffering that leads up to death is the beginning of the worst possible humiliation, the worst humiliating state that you could be in as a human, death itself? You see, life teaches us the closer you get to death, the more sick a person becomes, basically, the more pitiful, the more humiliated, the more degraded that person is as a human being. Doesn't it make logical sense then that death itself is actually worse than the suffering leading up to it? Doesn't it make sense that death must be more atrocious, more degrading, more shameful, more humiliating for a human being to be under? What's my point in all this? My point is this. This. My Korean terrestrial just came out. My point is this. Death is not something that you should smile back at. Death is not something you should minimize and act as if it's not a big deal or try to face with some courage of defiance. No, death is horrible. Death is disgusting. Death is scary. Death is something you should avoid at all costs. Death is something you should never want to ever have to face. But therein lies the problem. There is no wisdom out there that can give you power over death. There is no knowledge out there that can give you control over something as disgusting as death. And as long as death exists in this world, as long as death is coming for you, it doesn't matter if you have a million dollars in your account. It doesn't matter if you're married. It doesn't matter if you can beat up 30 people. It doesn't matter if you have all categorical types of wisdom in the world. You have no control of life whatsoever. So the question becomes, what do we do? What do we do in this hopeless situation where we are confronted of how dark this world is and how much we are powerless in dealing with this darkness? The answer leads me to my final point, the control we can receive. Let's read the second half of verse 12 of our passage where Solomon says this, For what can the man do who comes after the king? Only what has already been done. Now, Old Testament scholars are really divided over what exactly Solomon is saying. I've read at least seven different commentaries from different Old Testament scholars, and they all say completely different things. None of them even agree with one another. And the reason why this is such a difficult verse is because when you read this in the original Hebrew, it doesn't sound as neat and clean as our English translation here. Okay? The original Hebrew is very hard. The grammar is very hard. And what makes this verse so hard to understand is because the grammar doesn't really specify who this king that Solomon is referring to in verse 12. Who is this king to which man do who comes, uh, or for what can man do who comes after the king? Who is this king? You know, most people, when they first read this for the first time, they think, oh, isn't it referring to Solomon? 
Isn't he the king of Israel? Isn't he the author of this book? Yes, it must be Solomon. But here's the problem with that interpretation. Because what Solomon is basically saying in verse 12 is basically this. There is a king, according to Solomon, who is so wise and therefore has so much control that no one after him will have the kind of control that he has. In fact, no one will have control like this person has, this king. In fact, the only way that anyone can have control, they're going to have to go back to this king. They're going to have to refer to this king. They're going to have to depend on this king. Because this king has wisdom, i.e. control, that no one after him will ever have again. Here's the question. Is this king someone who sounds like Solomon? Especially when you think about what he said in verse 7, how he hated life. Why did he hate life? Because he had no control. Solomon just admitted earlier that this is not him. So who is this king? The source of wisdom and control. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting in verse 51, we read, But let me reveal to you a wonderful secret. We will not all die, but we will all be transformed. It will happen in a moment, in the blink of an eye, when the last trumpet is blown. For when the trumpet sounds, those who have died will be raised to live forever. And we who are living will be also transformed. For our dying bodies must be transformed into bodies that will never die. Our mortal bodies must be transformed into immortal bodies. Then, when our dying bodies have been transformed into bodies that will never die, this scripture will be fulfilled. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? For sin is the sting that results in death, and the law gives sin its power. But thank God he gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul here is talking about the second coming of Jesus. When Jesus, as we Christians believe, will come back again at the end of history and claim his church, claim his people, and make all things new. But here's what's so interesting, the way Paul describes the second coming. You notice there's a lot of trumpets being played when Jesus is coming back? <laughs> Why, what's with the trumpets? Why is all these trumpet fanfare being played when Jesus arrives? Well, haven't you ever noticed whenever you know, President Obama walks into a room, there's always a brass band playing? You know? Or whenever Queen Elizabeth walks into a room, there's always a brass band playing. The playing of trumpets is recognition of the arrival of the head of state, the king, the one in charge, the one in control, Jesus, right? Jesus is the king who comes at the end of time with absolute authority and therefore absolute control. In fact, Jesus' control is so absolute that there's evidence of that by the fact that what? He doesn't die. He can never die. Remember how I said in my second point that death is evidence that you have no control over your life? Right? That you have no real, true wisdom? Well, Jesus' resurrection from the dead is absolute proof that he has absolute control over life. Because him, he has conquered death. Death has no power over him. He has power over death. And if you trust him as Lord and Savior by confessing your sins, by being loyal to him as your king, then you too will gain the control of life that you can never gain through your own wisdom. That is what Paul means when he says in verse 57, but thank God he gave us victory over sin and death through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the only way you gain control of life 
is not by having a massive banking account. It's not by marrying the perfect person. It's not by, you know, being able to defend yourself against multiple attackers. It's not from any sort of wisdom that you think you can capture on your own to make you feel like you have real control. No, real control comes from knowing the one who has genuine true control. The one who Paul says in 1 Corinthians is true wisdom of God. It comes from knowing Christ and being devoted to Christ and submitting to Christ as your king. Which means if you want to get rid of one of the main reasons why we sigh so much, because we are confronted of how much control we don't have, you need to go to him. Don't go to a book. Don't go to a dojo. Don't go to a university. Don't go to any other source for wisdom. Go to the one who has wisdom that really has power to give you control because he acquired control for you when he died on the cross. You know, when Jesus died, his death was the most humiliating thing a human being could ever experience. That's how the Bible describes his death. His death was like every human death. It was atrocious. It was shameful. It was wrong. But he died. Why? So that you, if you have faith in him, will never die. Yes, one day you will die. You're not going to stay dead. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, you will rise again. The resurrection of Jesus is promised that you too will rise again. And your conquering over death means that you finally have something in Jesus that you can never have in yourself. You have control. Do you have faith in that? Do you believe that? NCF, I know for many of you, you're battling really hard for control, right? And you manifest that sense of control in different ways. Maybe it's graduating at a certain university or maybe getting married at a certain age or having a child at this point in your life, right? Something that you can point to as evidence. You see, that right there proves that I'm in control of life. But if you go down that route, you are going to end up in that same mindset that Solomon was in verse 17. So I hated life. You're going to be betrayed by that wisdom. Because even after you gain that husband, even after you gain that finance, even after you gain that knowledge of defending yourself, something is going to happen where you're going to realize that you're still just as vulnerable, just as weak, and therefore not in control as you thought you were death. Do you want control of life? Of course, we all do. How do you get it? You only get it through Christ. You only get it through your king. You only get it through the one who had absolute control. Because this king who has absolute control, this king loves you. This king is protecting you. This king is for you. This king is so for you that he suffered the worst kind of humiliation to ensure that he's got your back, that he's always with you. Here's my question. Do you believe that? Do you have confidence in that? Let's pray. Father, we sigh for so many reasons, and yet another big reason is because of the fact that we are aware of how dark this world can be how it's filled with circumstances and situations that are simply beyond our ability to conquer. And so, Lord, help us to not fall down the 
the, the track of folly that Solomon went into thinking that he just needed to know more. He just needed to acquire more. He just needed more wisdom. Father, we know that wisdom can be good, but our ability to capture wisdom is not sufficient in alleviating the biggest problems that we have, namely our own death. Death is the biggest reminder that we have no true control, that whatever control we have is merely superficial and trivial at best. And so, Father, spare us from the pessimism and the bitterness and anger that Solomon faced towards the end of his life when he realized that he just felt like he squandered away, chasing after wisdom that had no real power in it. Father, spare us from that tragedy by showing us true wisdom, by showing us Jesus Christ. I pray for my brothers and sisters that as they are living their life in this city and as they're trying to get more firmly rooted and to feel like they have control, that they would only look to Jesus and not to themselves, not to a spouse, not to a skill or ability, not to money, but only to you, Jesus. For we know that it is because of your power over death and the amazing power of your love for us that we can finally be stable and we can be sure that we are on solid ground, even in a world that's as dark and chaotic and uncontrollable as ours. Would you give us the faith to believe that now, for we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We're not going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings. If you're visiting us today, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God his tithes and our offerings. Dear Lord Father, thank you for this beautiful day. Thank you for your steadfast love, even when we are so undeserving and take you for granted. May we live each day knowing that you are by our sides guiding us. Lord Father, we pray for Pastor John and Pastor James and their families. May you continue to use them in your mighty ways to bless this church and our communities. We pray for the leadership of NCF and KCQ. May you give them wisdom to make decisions that are good for the congregation. We pray for the leadership of this country and other countries in this turbulent world to lead the nations away from darkness. Lord Father, may you be with those in our congregation who are enduring a season of hardship and suffering, whether it be our finances, health, or relationships. May you bring healing and stability. When we confront these issues in our lives, we tend to confront them on our own, 
may we relinquish our tendency for controlling these matters, trying to fix them on our own. Rather, may we trust you and you alone to help us weather the storm. Lord, the world you've entrusted us with is in a state of disarray. From the acts of violence and terrorism in our country and abroad, we can clearly see that humanity is in need of you, our Savior. In these times of mourning, fear, and uncertainty, may we look to you for comfort, peace, and resolution. And I pray for this offering. May our tithes and offerings be used to spread your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please stand and join us as we end with this last song.